This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Activating player-driven hooks. Gertrude Ambercrombie. Defunct foods. And ghost hunting equipment. beginning to look a lot like weirdness. Yes, weirdness in July. Weirdness seems to start earlier every year. Especially on Kickstarter, where the weird little elf game from Atlas has everyone in the weirdness spirit. Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. In weird little elf players take turns being Santa who poses a question for the others to answer. The other players are elves, although one is secretly an imp who follows a special rule that could give it away. The first player to accuse the imp correctly three times wins. Weird little elf comes in a cute palm-sized box that looks like a gift wrap present. Perfect as a stocking stuffer. Get your holiday shopping done early. And efficiently. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends, you know they don't already own it, and keep one for yourself. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect, not boring activity for your next holiday gathering. Playable with practically any group, any size, any age. A light social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes. Weird Little Elf is on Kickstarter from July 12th until August 11th. Learn more at atlas-games.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. Before we get to the clattering dice, the thumping miniatures, the crunching Doritos, and even Peter Frampton coming alive, let me welcome you to Gen Con Day Zero, where I am recording my half of this podcast. Robin remains on station in Toronto, so Robin will sound normal, even normaler maybe than normal, because he will be contrasting with whatever weird acoustic snarlery the embassy suites in downtown Indianapolis have produced as well as my aged laptop and my recording on the phone. So we apologize for any sound issues. Obviously, beloved sound engineer Rob Borges will probably make it sound perfect and make this whole thing an exercise in surrealism. And with that foreshadowing, I welcome you into the gaming hut where we're talking activating player-driven hooks. Obviously, players often give the GM hooks on purpose, sometimes by accident. Sometimes the games uh, even tell you to do that. Yeah. I mean, for a game to tell you to do that, that would have to be the sign of a of a proactive designer with a real finger on the pulse of how games are played at their best in the Anglophone world. Robin, do you have a game like that in mind? Why, yes. I thought that we would uh, provide an example of how to do this by uh, looking at the Yellow King role-playing game. So I've been writing Yellow King scenarios for a uh, soon-to-be-announced project that will be a long in development. And as I go through, I quite frequently find myself writing a header in. And this would be a great place to put in the deuced peculiar thing, as it's called in the first uh, Paris segment. Or uh, this is a great spot in this case for, uh, we're going to use the example from This Is Normal Now, which is the final contemporary Yellow King horror book. And that is called The Freaking Weird Moment. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have Ken create a freaking weird moment, and then I will demonstrate how uh, we would possibly uh, weave that into uh, different scenarios. So in order to show that I'm not cheating, right, because the way to cheat this would be to have Ken specify what his character's freaking weird moment is, and then I could just think up three examples of scenarios that would, that would automatically fit into. But that's not the point. The point here is you've already got a scenario, and you're trying to fit this thing into it in an appropriate moment. So, the three scenarios we're going to do, and uh, Ken, you can affirm that we've never met before. We uh, we are total strangers, sir. You're not even in the same city. Total strangers. So, I'm going to draw this from an envelope. Uh, the first one is, something is killing influencers. The second one is, someone has blown up the Georgia Guidestones. 
Note how we're fitting in a, a current event that doesn't quite rate yet another segment on the Georgia right, Guidestones, yeah. which we recently covered. And then finally, 3D Make Your Workshop Generates Monsters. And so you'll note that all of these follow the uh, basic motifs of this is normal now in that they're trying to find very contemporary of the moment tracks into traditional horror or specifically reality horror. So again, tell me a little bit about your character and most specifically about the freaking weird moment. This is, of course, a uh, something that has happened to your character before play begins that foreshadows involvement uh, with Carcosa and indicates that you uh, have al already are on your way toward a weird destiny. All right. My character, uh, the campaign is set in Chicago. Uh, my character is an architecture student and uh, works as a bartender to pay for school. That's my character. And again, I could just have post Robin's uh, uh, scenario list imagined a freaking weird moment that matches it. But instead, this is the freaking weird moment I imagined when Robin first told me have a freaking weird moment ready. And this is, in fact, a freaking weird moment that has almost happened to me. And you'll probably notice the part where it does not. Anyway, I have a series of recurring dreams that take place in a similar city to Chicago in that it has an elevated rail transit system, but it is not Chicago's. But in my dreams, I have memorized the map of it and I can travel all over this dream city. And this is all ab absolutely true. I go back to that dream city over and over and over again in my dreams. Sometimes other dreams dump me off in the weird city or sometimes the dream city is where, you know, the convention that I have to do a panel and I haven't met any of the panelists or whatever the normal stress dream is, is happening. But often there will be a period where I do dream public transit and ride around on the L of that dream city. And I do that a great deal. So the freaking weird moment for my character which has so far knock would not happen to me is that I get off the L and I stand on a platform and I look and the sign is not a sign for the Chicago L and uh, I would hesitate to say it's so on the nose as to say Carcosa, but let's say it's, you know, ghoul street or something, not ghoul street. That's also too obvious, whatever. Anyway, it's some other street name. And I recognize the platform that I'm on as one of the platforms from my dream transit network. And then as I recognize that, I like, you know, think, well, I've got to get out into my dream city. I go down through the, you know, little stairs. I go out the turnstile and I'm back on regular Chicago uh, downtown. And I'm not in the dream city anymore. But for a bit, I was in that dream L station. So that is an almost except for the part where I walked out into it. That is a freaking weird moment almost from my life. Robin, take it away. So, so I'm going to work with you as GM and, and pitch you the idea that the name of the station that you uh, temporarily, momentarily walked into was Temple Boulevard. Temple Boulevard. Uh, which, of course, is a street from Paris and will then also give us a uh, link back, a, a callback, as it were. To in, the, in Chicago, it would probably just say Temple would be the, the way you would see temple. the sign. Well, right. the fact that this is Temple Boulevard, that's the tip-off that it's ain't, ain't Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. So, uh, for Something is Killing Influencers, all of the characters uh, start out at this bash that is being uh, thrown for a big uh, publicity thing, a launch of a series of, uh, let's say, uh, post-NFTs. Mm. It's a new uh, virtual collectible, but it's not an NFT. It's not. Nope. It's not the apes are now that. engaged. Their eyes are open. Uh, and so you work as a bartender, so uh, it's mm -hmm. easy as pie to see uh, why you were there. And we come up with reasons for the other player characters to, to be there, which we needn't do. But the surprise to you at the uh, unveiling of this event before the first of the influencers is uh, mysteriously uh, slain is that the thing that you're buying is spots in a virtual city. And mm. one of the places in the virtual city is Temple Boulevard. And uh, basically uh, what everybody is buying into is in uh, sort of an online play slash ownership scam where uh, what you were buying, the tulips, behind this scheme are little bits and pieces of this city and they unveil uh, a big map. It's like buying a, it's like uh, naming a star, but you're buying a piece of this virtual city. Yes. Uh, and the idea is that there's then a, a game aspect where people can 
trade bits of the city and uh, you become a virtual landlord and so forth. And that's just sort of the, the background to the, the thing. This may not have anything to do with why uh, influencers are being killed. Or in fact, it may have everything to do with that. They may all be involved in this uh, uh, scam, whatever it is. But you have that moment where they unveil the big map and it's the map that you know perfectly well and you've traveled in your uh, dreams. And uh, then you have a moment to uh, to react. And, and how would your character react to that? Well, definitely take a picture of the map with my cell phone, right? That's the sort of look it really happened. Then it's like, well, I can't convince anyone I already dreamed this. But I think that part of it would be to try and find out who designed the map. Is it, you know, someone that's at the party or is it just, you know, are they off in some inaccessible Silicon Valley, you know, uh, crow's nest and it's just, uh, you know, Instagram and TikTok people at this party. And the only, per the only lead might be the publicist. So I try and find, you know, and if I couldn't, you know, if they weren't at the party, I, I would start going online and figuring out the name of the, of the designer or the mapper of the virtual city. And I assume there'd be like, you know, URLs and uh, QR codes to snap all over this stupid party, right? Right. And now that I know that, that I presumably changed the written scenario uh, enough to sort of change what the electronic scam is to key into your thing, it's already established that the antagonist in this is the uh, Duke of Deception, a uh, Carcosan noble who's uh, unaligned with either the princesses, sometimes he works for the king, and you've possibly encountered the Duke of Deception before in previous sequences. And so, of course, what would the Duke of Deception be doing in the modern day but selling people nothing? Right. Except it's worse than nothing because the city is really in Carcosa, despite the Parisian ref references. And if you buy into it too hard, your soul winds up uh, trapped in Carcosa. But he's got to create the magic that allows this electronic thing to also become a magical ceremonial thing with, you know, good old fashioned sacrifices and right. who's full of mana, but uh, people who get a lot of attention and eyeballs, but uh, influencers. Right. The, the more likes you have on TikTok, the more Carcosa wants your soul. Exactly. So next we come to someone has blown up the Georgia Guidestones. So first of all, uh, this would have to be fictionalized Georgia Guidestones because Ken, you've specified that this is set in Chicago and the idea for this is normal now is that the characters are relatively ordinary people. They're not jet-setting around solving occult problems the way right. that the Ordo Veritatis characters do in the Esoterrorists. So it just turns out that one day there's this strange new concrete monument out in the boonies. Where, where in the Chicago boonies would one find the uh, Chicago Guidestones, do you think, Ken? The, the Chicago Guidestones would be downstate somewhere down near Joliet, I imagine. So there, uh, you might foreshadow that in the previous adventure that they exist and they found, and you may even add the bit that a uh, local congressional candidate, a fringe candidate, is campaigning against the, the Joliet Guidestones. And now when you get down there, you find amid the rubble, you see that among the many uh, odd sort of inscriptions and references to the Hyades and Aldebaran on this uh, monument that's been blown up, you uh, discover a little chunk of that familiar subway map. And that possibly in this case, other people in the party also see things on the destroyed monument that resemble or call back to their freaking weird moments. So if there's someone who sees gargoyles, well, guess what? There's a little gargoyle on it that's been blown up. And so in that case, you are introducing these early and getting them out of the way, because in this case, the people who did this are sort of the alter egos of the uh, characters. They're sort of, uh, they might be literally doppelgangers. They might be tulpas created by the numinous nature of these characters who are fated to fold back in time uh, due to the Carcosian conspiracy, or they might just sort of be, you know, the, the alternate Shaun of the Dead gang that shows up for one scene, right? That they're the worst right. versions of you who have been, you know, they read the play too much and uh, they've resorted to violent measures. And of course, when they get a look of you, they figure you've been sent by Carcosa. And so your challenge here is to bring these ordinary people who've been uh, warped uh, by the king and try and bring them back onto the uh, straight and narrow before their next plan, which will involve blowing up the Chicago subway system, which they have determined is a mere reflection 
of a similar thing in Carcosa. Well, I would hate them to do that. <laughs> Another possibility is that, you know, we're meant to be sort of the reincarnations or linked somehow to our aftermath characters. But of course, the aftermath characters got that way because they were, you know, once upon a time terrorists, right? They were fighting against the Castain regime. So in the way that, you know, uh, the transporter breaks Kirk into good Kirk and evil Kirk, maybe the act of reincarnating, you know, Casilda magnetized one half of the twin and Camilla magnetized the other half and we're the Camilla half and the Casilda half of course is more uh, violent and obstreperous and crazy and that's where our dark timeline selves sort of emerged. They're not quite doppelgangers but they're like a reflection uh, a Casildan reflection of our more Camillan uh, selves and that's sort of the the vibe that, that could be uh, driving that. That's a GM idea not a player idea but I like it. Right. And then finally, we go to uh, 3D Maker Workshop is generating monsters. So this could be, you know, people are 3D printing cool things, which once put together in a particular way, begin to uh, animate and become, you know, Carcosan insects, except they're made of uh, whatever plastic or resin uh, that is used in 3D printing. And so, of course, the first monster attack, you don't want it to occur at the uh, Maker Workshop. You want to have it occur somewhere nearby. And in this case, I think it might be fun to uh, partway through the adventure that the characters are fleeing from these 3D resin Carcosan hornets and they flee onto the uh, subway system and they get on the L train and it takes them somewhere else. Right. And now they have to figure out uh, how to get home. And so if you're doing this, this might be something that you might do, GMs, uh, when the players have extended the mystery just enough that you had to go to two sessions when you only have a session <laughs> and a half worth of material. So you can throw in a bit uh, where you get to have the players, you know, bring in their hooks that they've supplied you by uh, creating uh, essentially an antagonist reaction where you briefly become uh, trapped in the Carcosa anti-Chicago and have to make your way back in order to hit the deadline to save the people you care about from the uh, 3D uh, resin Carcosa Hornets. Which you should do, by the way. No, no, And that also is a good way to prevent sort of the player instinct to explore and fiddle-faddle, is to have a ticking clock outside the dungeon or on the other side of the problem. I think that's a that's a, sort of a good thing to keep in your hip pocket as a utility, right? Right. So uh, anything that you're just sort of throwing in there for time, you can add tension to it by having a cost to uh, having them spend time. So uh, there you go. There's an example, uh, three examples of how to use uh, player hooks. And we took one and put it right into the premise and married it right to, to the whole center of the scenario. Another one we had in there just an illusion at the top to just be uh, the source of a composure role that might or might not degrade your composure pool or give you a shock card. And then finally, sort of an in-between one where we used it to create additional horror and suspense and bolt it onto something for uh, pacing reasons. And you know what else we do, Ken, for pacing reasons? We go to other segments when one segment is done. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free. 
with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time to climb up the neoclassical stairs of our nearest art museum and enter inside the Culture Hut, uh, where this time around, Ken, we're going to focus on yet another dream hound, uh, the Surrealist movement, uh, despite its self-appointed gatekeeper Andre Breton's effort to relegate women to muse status, attracted a lot of uh, women, not just in Paris, but all around the world to its style. So there are a sort of outposts of surrealism who were affected. Uh, the, the surrealist movement sort of starts in the mid-20s, and then by the 30s, it sort of radiates elsewhere to Mexico and Japan and Egypt. And it also so happens, Ken, uh, Chicago, because you've recently discovered the story of uh, Chicago's own surrealist, or, or one of its surrealists, Gertrude Abercrombie. Uh, so what uh, led her, first of all, to pop up on your doorstep, as it were, with a, a balloon and a cat? Uh, she popped up on my doorstep because it was... I, I was just noticing something. I forget if it was on Twitter or some other, you know, stream of culture, but someone mentioned Gertrude Abercrombie, the jazz witch of Chicago. And that was just the line that they used. And I thought, well, I want to know about the jazz witch of Chicago. I like all those things and looked into it. And it turned out not just was she the jazz witch of Chicago. She was also a path breaking surrealist artist and her art in common with most surrealism is weird and evocative and fun and uh, creepy as hell. And all those are good qualities for both games and art. And that I, I sort of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, she doesn't have, I don't think there's a single book that's in print. That's just about her. There's two museum catalogs that are for exhibitions of, of hers uh, retrospectives. They're both, I think pretty seriously out of print. But there was one book in print from a different exhibit that was just about Chicago surrealism. And I thought, well, that's even better because now I have more Chicago surrealists. And I got that book. My friend Isaac, I think, gave it to me for Christmas. And I looked in it and she kept unfolding like a beautiful flower. And eventually I wrote a uh, Call of Chicago page XX column uh, all about her. So her story begins in 1909. She's born Ken, to traveling opera singers. And she moves to uh, your neck in the woods, presumably with her parents, in 1916. Yeah, they were in Berlin when she was a little girl. War broke out. They had to get out. They went to a sort of a remote farmhouse in Illinois. Uh, from there, uh, it turns out traveling opera singers don't like it in remote Illinois farm country where her relatives were. So they moved to Hyde Park, which is the university community around the University of Chicago on the south side. It's my neighborhood. And uh, they lived there. And then when she got a job as a commercial artist and then for the WPA, uh, she moved into her own Hyde Park Greystone. And um, I think she was in a different flat before she moved into her Greystone, but she became the center of a artistic scene. She rapidly developed as an artist. She had her first show as part of the World's Fair in 1933 at the Grant Park Outdoor Fair, and then another big show at Crooks and Brentano's, which at that time was the largest bookstore in the world. She saw Dali's exhibits uh, in 1931. Dali also exhibited at the World's Fair, but she was most influenced by Magritte, uh, according to her. And if you look at her art, that's a fair cop. She hangs out not just with the Chicago Surrealists, Dorothy Tanning, Eldazir Corder, Carl Priba, Julio Diego, Harold Necker, and Julia Thecla, who, by the way, often dressed as a bird. And, you know, that's fun. If you want to break into a surrealist scene, dress as a bird. That's tip number one. Yeah, good advice. And then uh, she also hung out with Catherine Dunham, who would go on to revolutionize American dance, but at that time was an anthropologist, a grad student, uh, just back from Haiti, where she had learned all about Vodun. And uh, novelist Saul Bellow, when he was uh, but an undergrad and not yet Saul Bellow, and no doubt socking the cultural details away to uh, blow out in big mid-century modernist novels. Her first solo show is in 1944 at the Art Institute. She has a New York City gallery show in 46. In 48, she marries a second husband. She divorced her first husband. Uh, he's a music critic named Frank Sandiford. Uh, he introduced her to the jazz scene. And uh, she started hanging out with 
Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins and Sarah Vaughn. And whenever jazz musicians would come through Chicago on tour, they would usually finish out the night, you know, Saturday night or Sunday night at her house. And then they would play jazz and she would play piano and they would all uh, jam and it was great fun. Gillespie said that, you know, bebop was born first in Gertrude Abercrombie's art, which I don't think is quite true, but it was nice of him to say. And the modern jazz quartet went so far as to stay in her house between 1952 and 1954. They roomed with her. She, you know, again, she's an artist. She doesn't have a ton of money. So she would rent out like the third floor of her Greystone. A uh, modern opera composer, Krennic, lived there uh, after the modern jazz quartet. So there was always something happening, something bopping. Uh, the second wave of surrealists in the Midwest these were the, the Wisconsin Surrealists. So John Wilde, Jerome Caritas, and Dudley Hupler used to come down from Madison to hang out with uh, Gertrude on the weekends. Right, because if, if there's ever a, a beacon of surrealism, it's Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, well, it's, if, if if ever there is a reason to doubt that the world um, as it is is interesting and make you want to paint your dream life, it is Madison, Wisconsin. Um, she's still painting hugely prolifically in the 50s. This is when she is dubbed the Jazz Witch of Chicago because she is also interested in spiritualism and the occult. She does not seem to have practiced witchcraft, or at least never said that she did, but she painted herself as a witch a great number of times. And, and of course, being into uh, automatic writing and uh, the occult, although often from an ironic perspective, is also baked into surrealism. The original Paris surrealists were all playing with that stuff without acknowledging that they were fully into the occult at the same time. Right. Yeah. They sort of, um, like you said, ironically distanced themselves from it, but spent a lot of time thinking and arguing about it for someone who was ironically distancing. Uh, her last solo show was in 1964 at the Gilman Gallery in Chicago. Her marriage breaks up that same year, probably due to her increasing alcoholism, which then, you know, leads to a lot of other bad health effects pancreatitis. Uh, she gets very bad at arthritis, possibly nephritis. She's confined to a wheelchair and she dies, you know, sadly in 1977. And ironically, I, I think the way she would have wanted to die uh, during a retrospective show about her life and career, which was being held down the road at the Hyde Park Arts Center. So, you know, the only way you top your own retrospective is to die during it, I guess. And that's what she did. We, we all got to go if we can pick a high note. That's that's the way to do it. Yep. She, uh, she got briefly rediscovered in the 80s and then sort of laid fallow and I think has had a big comeback in the 21st century, uh, not just because uh, the surrealists are having a comeback, but also because people are paying more attention to female artists, uh, to women painters especially, and because I think her work is, you know, alienating and strange and messed up in the way that a lot of people, <laughs> not all of them uh, on this podcast, uh, consider the real world to be at this point. And Gertrude's tiny human figures with big creepy trees and scary moons and blank doorways sort of, you know, touch a nerve, I think. So the premise, of course, of Dream Hands of Paris is that people can move into the dreamlands if they're surrealist painters. And in fact, as a previous generation of uh, symbolist artists did, actually manipulated and change uh, what it looks like. And so the sort of Lord Dunsany looking uh, stuff that Lovecraft describes is replaced by melting clocks and empty Giorgio Giacirico plazas. And so we need to know now, Kim, what exactly she was up to in the dreamlands and when. Yeah. Like I said, that there's sort of two waves of her cultural community, the thirties, the first wave of surrealists, She's, you know, just part of that scene. She could have walked in the same way that Cocteau or anybody else did. In the same way that the Paris Surrealists all, you know, wanted to claim Picasso and wanted to say he's part of our our team and our movement. Um, every every movement, you know, always has one guy that doesn't want to be part of the movement. Uh, William Gibson was sort of that for the cyberpunks for a while. Um, but with Picasso, they, they all thought he was the bomb. And Picasso said, I'm doing something else. You people are... Ridiculous with your melting heads. Yes, I'm already Picasso. I don't need I'm already guys, Picasso. I especially I don't, don't need, need Andrew Baton telling me what the rules are. Right. It's like, you know, if Superman had just refused to join the Justice League, that sort of attitude. And so the version of that in Chicago is the great uh, Ivan Albright, who, while also being very surreal, is a meticulous detail-oriented painter and uh, spent de decades on a canvas and didn't want any of this nonsense. And also 
very unapologetically loved money and fame. So he's also got a lot of Dali in him. Yes. <laughs> That's the Dali part for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and so Albright, of course, is sort of the, you know, the, the, the back end of this. And I, I love that in both the periods that she is, you know, hanging out with these artists, he is painting a giant decade long canvas. Uh, one of them called the door and one of them called the window. Uh, because she's, of course, obsessed with doors and windows and facades of buildings. And so the notion that he and she are sort of enemies or opposing poles is true, not just artistically, but I think it's fun if he's the, the gatekeeper of the dreamlands and is trying to keep her and her nonsense friends out of it. I think in the 30s, uh, with Catherine Dunham, it's almost irresistible to involve uh, Vaudun and uh, the Loire and all the sort of... Um, you know, notion of, of spirits that translate back and forth into the dreamlands as opposed to necessarily the, the ghoul type direct walks. And then in her forties and fifties era, when she's got, you know, bebop is her new way in. Ivan Albright has shut the door to her. She goes in through bebop this time and figures out maybe a, a staccato step or something that lets her walk into the dreamlands around various blank corners in Chicago. And again, brings down people from you know, even more blank and industrial Madison to sort of help her open the doorways uh, in. And then Albright has to like drag himself out of retirement and do one last magnificent canvas to, to mess her up. That's good fun. Right. And she's starting to fade in the 60s, but she can definitely be part of the idea that in Fall of Delta Green, the dreamlands are changing yet again. And she may be defending the dreamlands on behalf of surrealism and turning everything back into cats and doors and windows as uh, Warhol and Jasper Johns and uh, Lichtenstein and uh, Rauschenberg and all of these people are turning it into a pop art reflection of uh, the uh, crassness of a commercial culture. And so uh, she could be, you know, she could get the old gang back together, uh, perhaps with the help of some Delta Green agents in order to uh, prevent the uh, dreamlands from uh, corrupting even further. Yeah, uh, you can certainly, I mean, she seems to have been a perfectly great person, uh, obviously very generous to other artists. So I think casting her as the good guy is, is super fun as well. Uh, if she could be the good guy in over her head, the way that the dreamhounds are classically presented in the books, or she could be, you know, actively trying to help out. She certainly has an Ulthar connection. She owned 13 cats over her lifetime, most of them Maine Coons. And I feel like anyone who has that many cats and that much of an interest in the dreamlands is probably on, on uh, team Randolph Carter, not team Gug. And so it's easy to, you know, do a sympathetic Dreamhounds campaign centered around her and her uh, buddies uh, just as easily as it is to do one where she's, you know, messing with forces she can't control and only Ivan Albright and the uh, brush cut academics of, uh, of your investigator team can prevent her from, you know, upending the dreamlands and messing it up for everybody. Well, speaking of forces beyond our control, one thing we can't control is the onrushing commercial that is headed our way. But I bet there's another segment on the other side. The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive Through. Keep this podcast not just surreal, but also real. 
by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Andrew Dacey, Volpine, Derek Yates, Taylor Harless, and Phil Groff. The rattle of dishware, the smell of cookery, and the thumping of candy bars in the vending machine welcome us into the Food Hut. And today, in the Food Hut, we're not talking about uh, wonderful uh, new recipes and culinary exciting moments. Uh, you may have noted I'm in Indianapolis. So, uh, we're talking about extinct food. Food that is no longer with us. Food that we would get into a time machine and go and stock up on. And before... We get into it. When you say extinct food, there is a breed of classicist that raises their hand and says, oh, oh, teacher, call on me. I wish to discuss sylphium. <laughs> no one cares about your sylphium. It's just, you know, slightly better asphatida. Fine. Yes. Are we curious? We are. But we have fennel. Get over yourselves. Okay. So explain to everyone who's not a, a classical keener what that means. Silphium is a plant that grew only in Cyrenica in northern Libya and was much prized as a spice, as a garnish, as a aphrodisiac, as a medicine. You know, it, it was good for what I'll do. It shows up in pharmacopoeias and, and recipe books and was extinct by the time of the Emperor Nero because it had been so overgrazed and over cropped that they ran out of silphium and Pliny says the last silphium plant was given to Emperor Nero as a you know souvenir I guess and that was it there was never any more silphium and people get into arguments about what it was but it was probably something as I say very close to asphatida and probably a member of the fennel family and I, I just have only so much that I can get excited about fennel you know even extinct Roman fennel yes and, and, and we sell a fennel themed t-shirt even we do we do yeah so back to the uh, the remit as it were <laughs> as I was making my list I initially put on some dishes from now extinct restaurants but uh, that, I think, has an even narrower appeal. So we're going to stick, I think, exclusively, if not mostly, to actual uh, processed food products. And the first one I'm going to cite is an earlier evolution of something uh, mentioned almost every week in this show, which was a Dorito. So in the 70s in Ontario, and I searched the Internet for like a, a copy of the 70s bag. So I'm not even 100% sure that it was Doritos per se, but there was an omnipresent taco-flavored corn chip when I was a kid that these days you have a, a light coating of a spice mix on whatever your Dorito is. If it's a cheese Dorito, it may be slightly denser, but this literally had sort of a thick coating of bright reds. Uh, it must have had a chili powder in it to the max, and there was sometimes there'd be like more powder than chip. Sometimes there'd be little balls of the powder just by itself. It was incredibly flavorful. It turned your breath uh, horrible. It gave you a breath weapon against parents, basically. I remember my uh, mom would always hate it when I would go and buy these chips. But there was, I don't know, maybe there was some sort of, you know, kid narcotic in it as well. But eventually they realized that most people did not want to be smellable from a block away and that it was actually quite nasty to have so much flavor powder on the chip. But uh, next time you're fixing something in Ontario in the 1970s, Ken, pick me up some of those. I, I will. Um, I, re I remember those taco chips, and we had them in Oklahoma. And I remember the, the chips were almost fuzzy with the with the powder. Yes. <laughs> so I guess maybe they were Doritos, and they're uh, more than just uh, local. An early Doritos brand or, or, or a competitor that is no longer with us. My choice, thinking, you know, sort of in honor of the Choco Taco, which is the most recent extinct food of the charismatic megafauna of food. Yeah, someone's got the last sylphium of Choco Taco. Exactly. Possibly the Emperor Nero. Uh, the Jello Pudding Pop, universal in my childhood, in many ways, better than the ice cream pops I had. And I'm not going to say it's better than all ice cream pops. We didn't have Dove Bars when I was a kid. We had those sort of fudge sickle things that were always freezer burned. They came freezer burned in the store at save time. And then there was like, sometimes if you were very lucky, you'd get like a Klondike bar, but mostly what you got was jello pudding pops. And quite frankly, that was genius. Frozen pudding. Who doesn't want that? Bill Cosby's ethical transgressions and criminal history aside, the jello pudding pop killed and I miss it now. Next up still on the chip front, 
Uh, so Canada is also ground zero for flavored potato chips. The UK caught up to us a bit with crisps uh, later on, but uh, our hostess chip brand has always had all sorts of different flavors and continues to generate new flavors all the time. And uh, one that I would mention, except it's come back and I have some in a bag in the other room, is uh, roast chicken flavored chips. But one I haven't seen for a good while yet is uh, pizza flavored chips, which I remember as a kid. And those were uh, really great. And it's been a long time uh, since I've seen them again. So when you're uh, hitting the, the chip rack, and this one I'm pretty sure you would only find in Canada, yeah. pizza flavored potato chips. There was a bag of some kind of short-term promotional Lay's potato chips that I saw in Chicago that was obviously just Chicago because it was Giordano's pizza flavored potato <laughs> chips. very specific. It was very specific and it was god awful so i will get you your pizza chips but i'm i'm giving you all the ones i buy in, in canada's past well yeah i think those ones probably tasted more like cross promotion right um <laughs> the thing that i used to get into when i was a, a little kid in, in grade school was cinnamon candies and we had sort of you know we were kids in a Montessori grade school, so the amount of actual trouble we could get into was nil. It so our cinnamon candies. Our version of getting into trouble was eating cinnamon candies. And the hotter the cinnamon candies and the better the cinnamon candies, the more status you had as a child. And anyone could get red hots, like you put on a cupcake. That was like the the, the street garbage, you know, candy, the, the the oregano, if you will. But the ones that we prized not just because they were more powerful, but also because they came in the cool little shaker was the cinnamon Tic Tacs. And we used to, that was like, you'd pop out your cinnamon Tic Tacs and you were the king. You were the king of the playground. They stopped doing those in 2002. Then they released Sinfully Cinnamon in 2007. That sort of went away. Uh, Ferrero actually has just re-released a limited time stunt, Sinfully Cinnamon. But there's a lot of cinnamon Tic Tacs out there because you can see them on eBay and you can see them, you know, being sold in, you know, not pallets, but in the, pretty big boxes. In certain prisons. Yeah, I, I assume that child prisons everywhere still keep a, a thriving trade in cinnamon Tic Tacs going. But I miss them. I think they were terrific. The thing that I most think about that I would love to see back of all of these is the Treasures chocolate bar from Nielsen, uh, which was a Canadian uh, chocolate bar company. And there's a whole stream of superior Canadian candy bars that does not exist anywhere else. And, and many of them no longer exist anywhere because the companies have been taken over and the uh, brands have been rendered defunct. But the best one was Nielsen Treasures, which was essentially a box of chocolates in candy bar form. So it's six separate little bubbles of chocolate with different, mostly liquidy centers. There's a big exception. And they're all sitting together on a sort of plastic or not plastic, a, a chocolate platform uh, and you break them apart. So it's like these six chocolate bubbles on a, on a chocolate card, uh, all edible. And the flavors were Bordeaux, chocolate fondant, caramel, uh, which would have been also the basic part of a caramel bar, which is a right. still extant, ubiquitous uh, Canadian candy bar, strawberry cream, uh, nougat, which is starting to like head out of liquid center territory. And then finally, in my opinion, the, the lesser of the six would be the uh, Turkish delight. Yeah, Turkish delight is 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 god awful. Right, <laughs> and this is just a way to trick children into eating a certain amount of Turkish delight. Well, I guess that's that's the lesson you you learn as young Canadians is that things can be nice, but you're going to bite into Turkish delight sometime in this life. Right. So it's a complicated uh, choice path. You know, do you? get the Turkish delight over with first. Yes, of course you do. But then after that, it becomes more ambiguous. Right. And the nougat. Okay, sure. But then the other four, they're all roughly, okay, that third one, you have the caramel because you're familiar with that from the caramel. That's not so special. But the last three, what do you do? The one I would always finish on was the strawberry cream filling. But if they came back for a limited time, I would, you know, but they're not going to keep because it's a liquid candy. You can't yeah. put it in the fridge in the summertime. I don't know what I would do, but I'd get as many of them as I could. I'd, I'd have to get one of those uh, Yeti carrying bags to bring them back from the past. Yeah. My past candy bar, because I also have a, ma a past candy bar, is the Marathon Bar. Mars Candy Company made this during literally my classic Halloween era. So uh, from 1973, when I was eight, to 1981, when I was 16 and told, you're too old to go trick-or-treating, stop it. 
that was the years that they made the marathon bar. And the marathon bar was so-called because it was a caramel double helix. So like a rope, a loose rope covered in chocolate, but the chocolate was a little harder than regular milk chocolate. And the caramel was much thicker and stiffer. So you started eating a marathon bar. You were good for like all of Star Trek plus, you know, Brady Bunch, you know, maybe all the way through to Batman. You could just hence the name, hence the name. Right. And uh, they they were eight inches long and the uh, wrapper had like, like a ruler markings on it. So as to stunt on other lesser candies. And of course it was impossible to rack uh, because nothing is eight inches long in a candy rack, even in the seventies. And so it was hard to rack it. You know, kids only bought one because you know, you couldn't eat more than one in an afternoon before your mom yelled at you. And then, it, it just didn't do the numbers that Mars wanted. So it, it went away in 1981 with the rest of the 70s. Uh, but and, damn. And this sounds like, and you even said the words, this sounds like the most loathsome of defunct Canadian chocolate bars, the Eat More. Did you, did you have Eat Mores there? We, we had no Eat Mores. Or was the Eat, eat More ropey or, or what was it? It was big and long and took forever to eat and had a sort of a taffy center, except it was foul. It was horrible because the, the taffy center was sort of tarmac-like. This was delicious caramel, like in a Rolo. This was like top-notch caramel. Well, you do have to pay certain mystic prices in order to have peace order and good government. So having yeah. eat mores instead of marathons uh, might have been our yeah, price. Most of the thing. I'm going to mention another, uh, a more recently vanished Canadian chocolate bar, the Sweet Marie, which is just basically an O. Henry bar, but better in every single way. Yeah. And it's been replaced. O. Henry bars, the surprise ending is, oh, it's not very good. Right. Except the Sweet Marie's were great. <laughs> and again, exact same concept, but just, uh, you know, superior execution. Yep. And so there's not much more to say about it. So imagine that O. Henry's were really great and that they once existed in a faraway utopia known as Canada. And and on the topics of things that don't take a lot of setup, but are clearly wonderful, uh, there was a band of granola bars called Kudos, also made by the Mars Candy Company, because they had M&Ms in them. <laughs> and it's like, well, if you want health, but not health health, yes. <laughs> have a Kudos bar. And granola plus M&Ms, that's just a natural. It's the salty sweet yes. combo. It's the crunchy sweet combo. The, the alternate brand is the let's not kid ourselves. Uh, granola yeah. bar. <laughs> the, 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 seriously, just one sit up. That's all we're asking, a granola bar. And yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. It was lovely. It was, it was great to take on your hiking trips. People have, you know, they pay big money for bespoke trail mix when they could have just packed a box of kudos bars and enjoyed themselves. So the final one on my list is one that is, some might argue, is not technically defunct, but but lives on in a horrible zombie version. The Kraft onion dip in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even into the 90s, was a huge favorite of mine. You know, you, of course, you have to use a ripple chip for these. Mm -hmm. uh, that's yep, part yep. of the social contract. But the formulation of it, especially when it was nice and cold in the fridge and it was nice and stiff, and you had to fight with the chip to get it out. And therefore you would get somewhat more dip on your chip. Than, and it would leave uh, the trail through the, through the dip. Exactly. I loved that and was, uh, you know, addicted to it. And it was always a big treat. And then at some point they changed the formulation to make it more dippable and make it, uh, it's, it's runnier. Now it's softer. You get less of it in every chip and it doesn't taste nearly as good. And the texture is wrong. So it exists in this horrible revenant, undead Nosferatu form, and I, I just wish I had the original uh, formula back. But I guess I will also end on a note of original formula and zombie continuation. The thing that you'd know when you do time travel is, if you're in America or anywhere in the world between, say, 1950 and 1990, go to McDonald's, get the fries. Back in those days, Robin, they were fried in what Ray Kroc called Formula 47, 93% beef tallow, 7% vegetable oil. And uh, like I say, they replaced it with all vegetable oil in 1990 after a lengthy publicity campaign by a nutrition crank named Phil Sokoloff. And then well, eventually... If, if he uh, hadn't done it, the vegetarians would have. Right. Uh, well, and eventually someone made an actually good point, which is Hindus can't eat your fries, idiots. So, you know, that, that would have eventually sort of, you know, slowed the roll. But I got to tell you... Yeah, speaking of vegetarians... There was... Nothing better than McDonald's fries pre-1990. Ray Kroc used to tell stories about, you know, customers and bankers and people that, you know, big, big money men who said, Ray, you're not in the hamburger business. You're in the French fry business. <laughs> and it was true. There was nothing better 
than a McDonald's beef tallow box of fries with the salt and the whole nine yards. They were perfect. They were in every way. They were better. And Ray Kroc knew it. And then light went out of the world in 1990. And yes, I suppose we're all, quote, healthier, but I don't even think we're that much healthier. Beef tallow healthens you spiritually, Robin. That's what I will say. Right. Well, if there's one thing going in a time machine is all about. It's not health. It's about, you know, the, the damage to your cholesterol intake is, is uh, you know, countered by the amount of drinking under tables you have to do. So I think it all balances out for you. Yeah. And, it, you know, damage my cholesterol, but repair the time stream. That's a trade I make every day, Robin. A trade I make every day. Exactly. That's why you're the hero of this podcast. And on that note, uh, let us dine on a delicious, not at all defunct commercial and then see what other segment lurks on the other side. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the hut that crosses the stream between the paranormal, crankery, all sorts of other historical and weirdo uh, miscellany. And we're looking out the window. There's the alien big cat screaming on the moor. And over in the corner, we have the gray alien and the Nordic alien. But this time around, it looks they've got a whole bunch of stuff out on a table and they're packing things in boxes, all sorts of little bits of equipment because I think they're getting ready to go on a ghost hunt. So this time around, I thought we would look at uh, what ghost hunting equipment your paranormal investigators might take with them into a haunted house. I started with something that I just happened to remember on my shelves from a book called Ghost Hunter's Guide in 1972. But Ken, of course, you're always one to go back uh, as a classicist and find the even earlier reference and so you've uh, found what uh, Harry Price told people to put in their ghost hunting kits. Yes, in uh, 1937, Harry Price made a little pamphlet. Harry Price, the dean of British ghost hunters, all other British ghost hunters are now like, he's not our dean. He was a showman, a charlatan. We hate Harry Price. Ah, without him, you'd be nothing. Harry Price was your dean and your ticket. Uh, Harry Price uh, put together a pamphlet called The Blue Book for Ghost Hunting. And in The Blue Book, he recommended colored chalk, candles, thread, matches, a good watch with a second hand, flashlight, he called it an electric torch because, you know, British, uh, a notebook and a pencil, a camera, sandwiches and brandy. Sandwiches and brandy. This is what was left off the, the later versions of, of this, but uh, always bring snacks when you're yeah. investigating ghosts. It's, it's hungry work. And then he advised wearing rubber or felt-soled shoes so that you would be able to move quietly through the house in, in investigating human or supernatural apparitions is, is what he liked to put it in. You know, you'll love, you'll love that. So that was his list. Then in 1940, he wrote a book called The Most Haunted House in England, which was about his de-haunting of the Borley Rectory. And he listed more stuff that he brought in his bigger bag. And so that included steel measuring tape, uh, steel screw eyes, lead post office seal, sealing tool, strong quarter tape, and adhesive surgical tape for sealing doors, windows, or cupboards. A set of tools with wire nails, etc. A hank of electric flex, small electric bells, dry batteries and switches to make secret electrical contacts. So you would, you know, have something where a bell would ring if the door got opened so that ghosts couldn't do it without you knowing. A 9x12 reflex camera, film packs and flash bulbs. He said, if you have power available, bring an infrared lamp and then infrared film. And that's great advice. A small portable telephone for communicating with your assistant. 
a sketching block in case of drawing instruments for making plans, plans of the building, not, you know, plans like step Let's one, go fun ghost. And drink the rest of the brandy. Drink brandy. Bandages and iodine. That's quite sensible. A ball of string, a bowl of mercury for detecting tremors in the room or for making silent electrical mercury switches, which there's a lot. Of- this is when I'm starting to think that this is equipment that he never actually took and was just adding to his list. There's a lot of practical electrical engineering in his version of ghost hunting. I noticed um, a packet of graphite and a soft brush for developing fingerprints. And those, you know, again, it's a big bag. And he says it's a capacious suitcase. So may- maybe the, the blue books kit is enough. And then your uh, source, uh, who I also venerate, Peter Underwood, adds cotton batting and plasticine to the ceiling apparat, flour, sugar. Then I think that's for scattering on the floor to reveal footprints. Maybe the sugar. Yep. I don't know what that's for. The same deal. Yes. And of course, in a world with real ghosts, you probably also need to add salt to create yeah, your right. circle to keep them out. Your barrier. Yeah. And then uh, he says a thermometer because uh, the, the transmitting thermograph is now smaller and easier to carry and a mirror, which weirdly enough, our boy Harry Price left off, but that's, Maybe the most obvious thing that he put on. And then there's even more stuff, Robin, which since you uncovered it, I'll let you list. Right. So uh, he mentions a ruler, impact adhesive, an assortment of small screws, nails, tacks, screw eyes, a small hammer and screwdriver and brad all. And I guess this is about creating a little trip wires and stuff. So mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of this equipment is designed for detecting when real estate developers are wearing masks and mm. trying to scare people out of the haunted house. A lot yeah, of this I is feel like Peter Underwood and um, uh, Daphne and Velma are all hanging out together in some even better version. Right. So a lot of this is about ruling out the uh, possibility of it be a, uh, being a real person pulling a hoax. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this equipment uh, for your player characters, where we assume you're not spending a lot of time identifying hoaxes, but in fact are dealing with supernatural creatures. This is something that you mention once and then forget about. Mm-hmm. Also in a similar vein, I think still, uh, there's a lot of tripwire technology here. Wire yeah. clippers, parasmal pliers, a plumb line, and then we get luminous paint and luminous uh, card and paper. And that I think is to enable you to orient yourself in the dark because of course, you can't leave all the lights on. The ghost won't show up the lights on. And so, uh, but you, unlike the ghost, need to be able to see. So this is little ways of uh, marking stuff. If you have a luminous tape, uh, your risk is that stage managers and theatrical productions will try and steal it from you because you'll, you'll attract the actors. Yeah. Uh, apparently that's something else that it is really hard to source, or maybe it isn't anymore. Maybe there's a manufacturer of it now, but. When it's I was probably hard again, you know. Yeah, yeah it was <laughs> tough, tough to find. I guess ghost hunters were taking it all. A pen knife, which I guess is for prying loose clues. That's uh, something that your gumshoe characters probably want to have also for stabbing, you know, small rat-like ghost creatures and stuff. Mm-hmm. Several magnifying glasses, which you need, I think, just to prove your credibility as a uh, investigator nonetheless. But you want to, you know, examine small scratches and stuff and see if it's, you know, Brown Jenkins style scratches or just regular a spring balance, uh, which if a poltergeist moves an item, you then use the spring balance to see, well, that was a six ounce mug that the ghost just moved, perhaps a, a mug from the Kevin and Robin merch store Could have been. Uh, and a strain gauge, which again, you're measuring the, uh, the strength of your poltergeist so that when it pushes a door open, you've got a measuring t- thing to, you, you know, you push the door open yourself, you know, oh, well, this ghost, you know, managed this amount of force to open this door, at least. You can you can get its strength uh, statistic from that. Right. Now, of course, both 72 and, uh, and the 30s and 40s are earlier than our present electronic day where, you know, ghost hunting can get you a show and it's yeah. easier to find a contract to have a ghost hunting show than it is to find a ghost. And uh, the number one obvious thing that your modern ghost hunter characters are going to have, which is going to partly make us, you know, not so afraid of the dark, except it's green and scary and horrible looking night vision goggles, yep. which from Silence of the Lambs on down add terror and the ability to see uh, to any ghost or I guess serial hunter hunt uh, that you might imagine. Yeah. And then rather than the field telephone, you'd bring either walkie talkies or some other 
comms software, earbuds uh, with a retransmitter and a laptop somewhere. You'd have uh, your your camera for your ghost show, and probably everyone's outfitted with wearable cameras like a GoPro or something like that, so you can assemble all the footage later. You'd need a tape recorder or a digital recorder, either way, sound activated, and you'd need a lot of them so you can leave them around in rooms and pick up EVP and hear, you know, weird footprints and noises. An EM field meter just to measure electrical strength. Uh, if your ghosts are the kind that are a electromagnetic effect, you want to know it. Also, if you're just measuring a, a high magnetic field, that's often correlated with ghost sightings. You need a temperature gun so you can find cold spots without walking through them. An IR uh, infrared camera and scope, just like uh, Harry Price recommended, but you don't have to use mains power anymore. Rather than fooling around with all the little bits of stuff, just bring a Makita power drill. Um, and then, of course, everyone always needs duct tape, Robin. A million uses, including in ghost hunting. Tape your thermocouple to the wall. Yep. Tape um, uh, your real estate developer up. Whatever you need to do with it. Tape your arm up when the ghost scratches it. Uh-huh. So, uh, I guess the, the the question for role-playing is how much to emphasize equipment on all of this stuff. Because equipment is evocative. Uh, some people love to pour through equipment lists. But the whole idea of saying, you have a standard ghost kit, is to be able to say, well, you have all of this Stuff. So I would be inclined, rather than to require the characters to pour over the lists ahead of time and make sure they've got this or that or have a series of trade-offs that's, you know, a dumb carryover from F20 that doesn't right. actually pay off in mystery or occult role-playing, is just to say, you've got a ghost kit because you're a seasoned paranormal investigator, whether you're in the Ordo Veritatis or, you know, whether you've uh, learned from reading Harry Price and Peter Underwood and watching all these shows. And so you have this stuff with you. And then you might say, as part of this, that, uh, you know, with uh, evidence collection or uh, occultism or whatever you're using as the ability that uh, keys off of this equipment, uh, as GM, you might say, well, using your spring balance, you determine that this was opened with a considerable force, much more than a child, uh, much less the ghost of a child could muster. So this might be something bigger and nastier. And so that is an actual important bit of information that you can convey and bring in the fact that, and of course, you're using your strain gauge to do this as part of the visual and part of the action without I think probably wanting to have the players go through the list and go, okay, strain gauge. Is there anything I can do with my strain gauge? Nope. Okay. Uh, spring balance. Can it, that would be incredibly boring. I would think. Yeah. I mean, you, the presence of a ghost kit is like good for a, a bonus on your preparedness roll. I would say, because you thought to bring a ghost kit already. So you probably have all this stuff rucking around in it. I think that to an extent, you could have uh, in the rule book or maybe on a little card, the sort of things your ghost kit might include and then list stuff and you don't require it. It's not required, but I feel like many players would look at something like this and say, Oh, I never thought of that. I never thought of, you know, bringing flour to leave for footprints. I think that's a good idea or a bowl of mercury. <laughs> what am I going to do with that? Besides everything. <laughs> as long as I don't drink it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, you know, but you know, so much fun. Lots of, lots of this stuff is in my mind and maybe I'm an old school ghost hunter at heart. It's just, it, it's evocative to read and it, it sparks, uh, not just joy, uh, Marie Kondo style, but it sparks creativity. And, you know, you think, okay, I'm going, um, uh, ghost hunting and oh yeah, I've got fingerprint kit, but that yeah. gives me an inspiration. It lets me think about stuff. I've got Play-Doh. What can I do with that? And, and speaking of evocative, there's one little category that we uh, save till the end. And this is, I think, the stuff that you have to make a flat-out preparedness role to have with you. Because Underwood also suggests bringing small evocative items that, I guess, is sort of uh, items for the ghost to play with or uh, what have you. So we have a small bell. A paper knife or dagger. Well, again, that's for stabbing your brown Jenkins. A Bible. That's for obviously brandishing in front of your more Demon-y devout ghosts. ghosts. Uh, likewise, a crucifix uh, might also be useful if the ghosts turn out to be vampires, uh, depending on the rules they follow. Or a, a, f- a photograph of some kind. Yeah. Stuff for the ghost to play with. Sort of like, you know, trying to find the Dalai Lama if he plays with a, a magic ball. That's good stuff. But also, yeah, I think, you, you know, if you are in a campaign or an environment or a mindset where you feel like ghosts or demons, maybe you're in the conjuring universe. I feel like, yeah, you definitely want to bring a Bible and a cross and maybe some holy water. What the heck, you know, 
Let's overlap our vampire hunting kit and our ghost kit. It can't, we don't use encumbrance rules. It can't go wrong. Just dump it into the duffel bag and, you know, know that you have, yeah, I think I've got some powdered asphatite or some powdered garlic around here somewhere in my powders. Or perhaps a, a treasure bar to, uh, to have an even <laughs> bigger callback to therefore uh, end the episode. Because we all know no ghost can resist a, a treasure bar. Or a callback. Ghosts literally are callbacks. They literally are. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep us in luminous tape and bradalls by joining such intrepid backers as... Liz and Siski. Terry Robinson. Lee Candelino. Luke Steyer. And Alan McSager. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Don our rhino-rific latest design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.